Alrighty, well, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to Lakeview Baptist Church. Uh, welcome to our Wednesday night prayer and devotional service. I want to welcome everyone who's joined us in person tonight. Very thankful for that, as well as, of course, for everyone who is listening uh, regularly online. And if you would be so inclined, I would like to begin our session tonight with just a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we ask for your grace tonight. We ask for your blessing upon our time. We ask for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, as, as we look at your truth, as we look at your word, as well as as we fellowship with one another as believers, dear Lord, we pray that this period of time we spend tonight would be a means of grace to us, whereby we are strengthened and sanctified in our faith. Dear Lord, we ask that all that is done tonight would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, and we would be to the praise of your glorious grace. So in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. So something that is not news to anyone, it is 2024 now, and, and of course as we begin our journey into the new year, you are likely going to hear or you have heard a lot of people talking about you know, their, their New Year's resolutions. Uh, these are these promises that, that people like to make of all sorts of various kinds. I, I want to eat better. I, I want to exercise. It could be things like that, or it could be very religious uh, types of rev- resolutions, whether it's, you know, you'll hear people talking about their, their Bible reading plan or, you know, what great you know, works of theology they want to read, or, or they want to do this, or, th- or they want to do that, and of course, you know, how a lot of those resolutions tend to go by February, they're all but forgotten. Um, you know, my whole life, I've always kind of thought that this concept of a New Year's resolution was rather silly. I mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm truly resolved in my soul that I'm going to do something, I, I don't need to wait for the calendar to change. I can just begin that at any time. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I, I've decided in my uh, preparation for tonight that I would take advantage of the season and the time of year to discuss this concept of resolutions in a way that I, I really praying right now is going to be beneficial to us all. I've already told some of you about this, but I'm deciding to do something a little bit different tonight. Not interpretive dance, not not singing. But uh, for if if you are a Christian of of a certain type, when you hear the word resolution, your mind, at least mine, immediately goes to the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, uh, born in 1703, uh, died in 1758. And now, One of the most, I would say amazing, one of the most famous pieces of Christian literature produced on American soil is uh, Edwards' 70 Resolutions. Now these resolutions, well they're exactly what they sound like, they are 70 resolves, 70 promises uh, made to himself as far as how he desired that he would like to live his life, and now it's it's actually kind of interesting. It's not likely that these were ever intended to be published. Uh, after Edwards' death, uh, people spent 
countless hours going through his, his diaries, his journals. He was a very voracious taker of notes. And uh, these resolutions, which we're going to be looking at just a few of them tonight, are some of the most fruitful uh, findings to come of such a great harvest. Now, to coincide with you know, much of this conversation and, and, and to hopefully encourage you and, and I believe strengthen you and even perhaps convict you in your Christian walk, you know, I, I want to look at some of these resolutions, though they were written about 300 years or so ago. Really, you can find them online. Every single one of them is amazing and, and is powerful and I think has relevance for today. And uh, of course, as we go through these, I'm going to be sharing some of my own thoughts and we're going to be looking at the text of Scripture as well. Now, it, it should be noted before I read all of these that all of them, because they are dated, all of them were written prior to his being 20 years old. Uh, this was obviously a man who was wise beyond his years. Now, the introduction to the resolutions begins with this brief comment. Edwards writes, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him for by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Now this is perhaps a good place to remind ourselves of that, that very necessary and important saying of Jesus in John chapter 15 where he says, apart from me you can do nothing. I think it should be incumbent upon us all to remind ourselves frequently of our utter weakness, to remind ourselves of our utter dependence upon the sustaining grace of God to live out the Christian lives we have been called to live. But you see, even, even just recognizing that is, is not something that we can do of our own selves, of our our or of our own will. It's not something that, that comes from the flesh. It's, it's a, a gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives which can even bring that understanding about. And so it is, of course, with prayer in our hearts that we seek His grace to help us understand these spiritual realities. Now, his first resolution, he writes, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be to the, to the most to the glory of God and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole time of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. This right here is probably the most well-known of these resolutions, and, and I think for good reason. Uh, the, 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 the absolute God-centeredness of this thinking has captured the hearts of Christians for, for the past couple hundred years. And, I, and it's not without scriptural warrant. Uh, a verse that gets quoted very often when you're discussing these topics is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And the Apostle Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. Now that verse gets quoted a lot, but most people don't really take the time to think about the, the context and, and what exactly is going on that leads Paul to write that statement. Now Paul, he, he specifically says, 
whether you eat or drink. So there's a specific thing about eating and drinking. Well, well why is that? Well, and, and we're going to spend a little bit, bit of time talking about this verse. He, he is having a discussion in his first epistle to the Corinthians about what we would call liberty of conscience, or, or Christian liberty would be another term. And, and so to set this up for you, what you had in the first century was that as the, the gospel, which Jesus, he's the, the, uh, Israel's Messiah, so the gospel is, is coming from the people of Israel, it's going out into the, the, the whole entire world, and as the gospel is going out into the Gentile world, it has to clash with the existing pagan religions of that day. Now, in that time period and in that context, you know, the various pagan temples that would be found in some of these different cities, these pagan temples, well, they had uh, sacrifices themselves where they would offer up an animal to their uh, false god. And, and a lot of these pagan temples function as, as almost like a, an ancient butcher shop where, you know, in some cases, even with their own dining rooms, that you could actually go in and, and you could have a, a meal there. And the meat, of course, that's being offered is the meat that was being sacrificed towards one of these idols, one of these false gods. And actually, Paul specifically says, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons. And so you have that, that, this very spiritual element that's there. Uh, and I think that that illustrates, you know, when we talk about uh, the cults and, and the different false religions of the world, there's obviously, I think, genuine demonic spiritual powers behind them. And so what Paul is doing, he, he is... He is a pastor writing to a church. He wants to speak very pastorally, things that are going to uh, relate to the everyday lives of the Christians. And, and at one point, he addresses the idea of a Christian going into the temple in order to eat without any intention you know, of offering up worship to a false god. Paul describes in chapter 8 this kind of Christian as, quote, one with knowledge. He is able to, in his maturity as a Christian, recognize, okay, those are false gods. There is only one true God who has made the heavens and has made the earth. And, and he's at this level of spiritual maturity where he could theoretically go into that temple. He could eat the meat and it would not affect his conscience at all. But then he says in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see, what Paul wants the Christian to avoid in this very practical scenario is being seen by others in that temple who don't possess the same maturity because what's going to happen? Someone who is less mature is going to think, okay, well, it, it's okay for me as a Christian to, to go in there. And they're going to go in there, and because of whether it's their, the way that they've grown up or whatever it may be, and they may actually fall into the dangerous, evil, wicked sin 
of spiritual adultery, which is, of course, idolatry. And so what Paul, he wants to say to the, to the mature Christian, he says, do not be seen in that scenario, do not be seen in the temple eating. Your conscience may be okay, but you're going to disturb the conscience of your weaker brother. You do not want to stumble your brother. Then Paul brings up the fact that, you know, this meat that was being off, uh, offered as a sacrifice in those temples, it would oftentimes be sold in the public market. And so then Paul addresses the reality, okay, okay you're a Christian, you're living in Corinth, there, this, is, this is just the air that you breathe, it's, it's just what, what's around you. And so if you're going to go to the public uh, meat market and you're going to you know, purchase some meat for yourself to eat or for your family, well, there is a very good chance that the meat that you're eating, whether you know it or not, has previously been offered to one of these false uh, gods, to one of these idols. And so what does Paul tell the Corinthian church to do when they are at, at the meat market? He says, quote, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You see, you don't necessarily know where the meat came from, but it's like there's this freedom and there's this liberty in Christ, your, your Christian liberty, your liberty of conscience, where it's like I, I, I really I, I don't need to know where it came from. You're, you're a Christian. You're, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You belong to the one true God. You're not, you're not engaging in idolatry or anything like that in that scenario. You're simply trying to eat. You're trying to provide for your family, so on and so forth. But then the apostle brings up another scenario, uh, the, the uh, scenario where you're invited over to an unbeliever's house. Now, wh why would a, a Christian even want to engage in such a Why would a Christian want to sit there at an unbeliever's house and eat with them? Well, you want to, as a Christian, use that opportunity for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so you go in there and you have Christian uh, noble intentions and, and you go there and the unbeliever, he sets down some meat there before you and, well, just like when you were in the meat market, you don't know where it came from. You do not know if it had been previously offered as, as a sacrifice to an idol, but again, you, you don't need to. You're, you're a follower of Christ. That, that's who you are. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The good shepherd is not going to lose one of his sheep. You don't, you don't have to, to worry about that necessarily. But then what happens is Paul raises the idea of someone else in the home saying to you, you know, giving you the knowledge saying, this meat has been offered in sacrifice. Paul says that in that specific scenario, we should not eat. Not for the sake of our own conscience. We have liberty of conscience. We have freedom in our conscience. But because, because of the fact that we know we're not offering up worship to any false gods, but we do not want to stumble somebody else's conscience. Somebody else might have the wrong idea about what it is that we're doing, and because of the fact, the only reason you're at this person's house in the first place is for the sake of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel, well, you don't want to do anything that's going to hinder 
that work. And so it is in that context that Paul then says, quote, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I just did something very, very purposeful there, and that is I dumped a lot of information on you. I, and, I, and, I, and I did that for a very specific reason. In the year 2024, uh, at least so far, only three days in, I realize anything could happen, but in the year and, and in the area where we live, this, you know, this whole idea of questioning whether or not our meat had been sacrificed to a false god, not something I ever think about. Not something you probably ever think about or have to worry about. And so it's like if you're a, a, a 21st century Christian and you're reading all this stuff and, and you're trying to go through it and you're trying to understand it, it may be like, well, man, that's a lot of details. Man, that's, that's a lot of stuff to try and, and work through. And it's like, okay, in this situation I can eat the meat, but in this situation I can't. And if... But I can't in this one, unless there's this variable over here, then I, then I can't eat the meat. And it's like, why, why do you have to go through all that? Why, why even think about all that just for something as simple, as rudimentary, something as mundane as eating? And so here's what I'm trying to get you to think about. What would the, if you were to ask that question to the Apostle Paul, why, why even think about all this stuff? What's it all for? Paul would look at you and you would say, it's for the glory of God. Because our lives are to be lived in such a way that every single thing that we do is done for the glory of God. And if that means we have to think about our very specific actions and, and what they're going to do and how they're going to be perceived by other people and if it's okay to eat the meat in this situation or not in that other situation, it's worth it. it we're, we are willing to make those, those sacrifices even though we know that we have the freedom to eat this meat. We are willing to forsake that, to make that sacrifice. Why? For the purpose of spreading Christ's gospel. You see, the, the idea there is that the chief and primary focus of how we should live our lives down to the very food that we touch with our hands and put in our mouths, we are doing it not only with thankfulness to God, but for His glory. Everything that we do is done for the Almighty. And, and, and I think... We are blessed when we, when we read Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' statements here. I think he captures that, and I think he helps us to think about that in a, in a very powerful way. And, and number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be nor suffer it, if I can possibly avoid it. These next few are going to have a common theme. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. 
Number seven, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I want to talk about those other two in a minute, but I just want to stop here and make a brief statement. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do for the last hour of my life. That, I think, is a good litmus test for any decision we make. Before I do this next thing, if I were to die an hour from now, would I have wanted to have done this thing? I think that's going, if, if, if we were to truly live that out, if that was to be your New Year's resolution, I think that would determine a, a lot of the things that you do, that we do in our free time. It's like if I only had one hour to live, would I really waste my time watching this, this stupid TV show? Or would I really waste my time looking at this stupid thing on the internet or, do, or doing this or doing that? I mean, if we really think about how, thought about, excuse me, how precious time was as it is a fleeting thing, I, I think we would reevaluate a lot of our decision making. Number nine, he says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now, these last few that I've read, they all call to mind a very specific text of Scripture for me, Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time, for the days are evil. You see, time can be likened to the talents in Jesus' parable. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the parable of the talents. Each servant is given a certain amount of talents. They're supposed to do something with those talents that is going to generate more talents, and then when their master returns, they, they give them back. The servant who does not make the best use of his talents, but he, but he buries them in the ground, he is judged, and then his master commands that his talents be taken away from him and given to someone else. In other words, the idea, and so if we, if we compare time to that, God gives us time so that we might use it wisely, appropriate, that we may improve it. The word redeem means to buy back, to use our time in such a way that is going to be most beneficial for the purposes of his kingdom and of his glory. We ought to seek to use our time, which is limited, in such a way so as to, as Edwards is admonishing us here, to most glorify our God. And this year, as you yourself contemplate the various goals, the various things that you would like to do this year, is using your time in such a way so as to most glorify God a part of your thinking? Or is our thinking consumed with, well, how can I most advance myself or my position? How can I most glorify myself? You see, very, very often it's the latter and it's not the former. I really like this one. Number 14, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the apostle writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think that one of the most impossible things we are called to do in the Christian life is to live in forgiveness. I call it impossible because I, I, I do not think that it would be possible at all without the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. 
It's because there are few things that are more antithetical to our flesh than to forgive someone when we've been wronged. When we are offended, it's like we have this idea to want to just take matters into our own hands to, you know, hurt someone if they've hurt us, but that's, I don't think that's how Jesus instructed us to live. Jesus said we ought to pray for our enemies, and, and so thankfully we do have the grace of God and, and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live in this way, because I could never do it on my own, but in the new life that I have in Christ, we have power from on high to do these great things. Number 17, Edwards writes, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 19, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Those two remind us of some of the things we've already talked about, but you know, if we, could only, if we could only live our lives right now in such a way as that when we come to take our final breaths, we will be satisfied with what we've done. And, and I can simply say this, everything outside of Jesus Christ is meaningless and vain. You will never have any hope. You will never have any fulfillment. You will never have any satisfaction without Him. It is when we are connected to the person of Jesus Christ that we have true purpose to live for. And then Edwards talks about not doing anything he would be afraid to do if it were to be less than an hour before he hears the final trump. And of course, he's referring to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that is another good litmus test for decision making. It's like, before I do this next thing, before I commit this next sin. Would I want to commit this sin, to do this thing, and then immediately be face to face with Jesus Christ? I think if we had that running through our minds more often, we would live much holier lives. And so it just calls to my mind, again, the saying of the Apostle Paul, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, What are we doing it for? We are doing it for the glory of God. And that includes vanquishing and mortifying the sin that's in our lives. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's a good New Year's resolution. Put to death what is earthly in you. The list includes sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked, notice that's a past tense thing, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, people talk about new year, new me. Well, there is a new self that you can have being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator. That's the new life you should be pursuing, and that's the new life that is made available to you 
in the gospel of Christ Jesus. Number 21, resolved never to do anything which if I should see in another, I should count as a just occasion to despise him for or to think any way the more meanly of him. Think about that. If there is something that if, if I'll pick on my brother here, Guy were to do, that if I were to see him do that, I would judge him for that. Well, I should not do that thing myself. Uh, Jesus t talks about the, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye that you're trying to pick out when there's a log in yours. Number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness where? In this world? No, he writes, in the other world as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Number 24, resolved, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. Number 28, resolve to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. That, if you're going to make one New Year's resolution, that's it. Study your Bible. 43, resolved never henceforward till I die to act as I were any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, in the specific context of this text, Paul's talking about sexual immorality, but of course, in keeping with the other passages of Scripture, we've talked about everything that we do in our bodies ought to be done unto God's glory. We are not our own. We belong to Him. We were bought with a price. And that price, of course, was the blood of Jesus Christ shed for all repentant sinners. And so as Edward said, let us act entirely and altogether God's. We are humble servants and He is our Master. 44, resolved that no other end but religion shall have any influence at all on any of my actions and that no action shall be in the least circumstance any otherwise than the religious end will carry it. 48, resolved constantly with the utmost niceness and diligence and the strictest scrutiny to be looking into the state of my soul that I may know whether I have truly an interest in Christ or not, that when I come to die, I may not have any negligence respecting this to repent of. This is not something you preach about if you want to be popular, but the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet that test. Now, so much more could be said about that than I have time tonight, unfortunately. But 
the reality is, when G- Jesus describes salvation in these terms, born again, what does that mean? It means new life. It means, so, so, so when, you're, when you're born again, you are different than you were after your first birth. Why is that? Well, your first birth, you were born in sin. You were born the fallen son or daughter of Adam. But when you're born again, Adam is no longer your covenant head. Your covenant head is Jesus Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. And so what Paul is getting to there is, look at your life. Have you been made, al- have you been made alive? Have you been changed? Have you been, the term that Paul will use in another letter is regeneration, which means to be given new life. Is there something different about you now that you are a Christian that was not true of you before you were a Christian? And I don't just mean coming to church. I don't just mean coming to church. I mean because in the Old Testament, people offered sacrifices to God, and he said, I abhor your new moons and your Sabbath days and your burnt offerings. They're, They're a stench to me. Why? Because though you offer those up, you're not walking with me. You're not following my law. So it's not enough to just do religious worship type things. Are you truly walking in the Spirit? Are you following the commands of Jesus Christ? Do I mean, are you sinlessly perfect? No, I do not. No, I do not. But I do mean born again. And unless you've been born again, you will not see and you will not enter the kingdom of God. Number 51, resolved that I will act so in every respect as I think I shall wish I had done if I should at last be damned. That's, that we could meditate on that for a while. 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I live to old age. That resonates with me because I've heard every person in my life who is older than me say those exact words. Oh, what I could do if I, how many different things I would do if I was your age again. And in my short time on this earth, I can already look back at different things and be, I wish I never did that. But Jesus Christ has, has saved me and I, and I, and I, I don't ch- worry about changing the past. I worry about the new life that I have in him. But if you are hearing my voice, that means that you are alive right now, which means that you can right now, whether you're young or old, whether you're at, you can decide right now, you know what? Whatever it is that when I come to the end of my days, I will have want to have done, I can start that now. And if you're a secular, worldly person, that's going to involve pleasure, money, uh, those types of things. And if you're a Christian person, if you're a godly person, it's going to be, well, what can I do to glorify Him in my body and with my time? What can I do for the purpose of advancing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Number 63, on the supposition that there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed resolved 
to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. Now, I'll translate that for a little bit, a little bit for you. What, what he's communicating there is, if in all the world there was only one person who was a complete, mature, faithful Christian, uh, walking in the Spirit, he uses the language, having Christianity always shining in its true luster, that I might be that one. If all the world should turn away from the kingdom of Christ, if all the world was following the passions of sin and wickedness, that amongst it all, I would still be glorifying God, my Savior. If you watch the news, you know that we are living in very strange, very weird times. You know, it's very, we have the freedom to do this right now. Come next New Year's, on January 3rd, 2025, this may be a very different context. And if I'm going to find all the world is turned against my Savior, I should still be following Him. Bill is staring at me, so I think it's time I better leave. And, uh, of course, I appreciate the attentiveness of all of you tonight. God bless you.